a thought I'd like to share with the young ones. What an interesting adventure we've had having to gather together on computers for church. Interesting, isn't it? Who would have ever thought that we'd be doing this, that you'd be doing school on a computer? Honestly, some, th some things we just can never imagine or, or think of, but here we are. And so I have to tell you that I go into the church building, into my office, maybe once or twice a week, and I like seeing it. But I know a lot of you haven't been to the church building since, what, maybe March, and uh, maybe even before that. And I'm wondering if you miss it at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What do you miss most about the church building? The cross. The cross, um, yep. Yeah. I miss um, playing around on the stage. Uh-huh. Yep. Very good. Very good. I think, uh, well, I miss a lot of things. I miss the baptismal font. I don't know why I like that baptismal font. And, you know, I, uh, well, I like it that it reminds us of our baptism, for one. And every time I walk by it, I like to put my finger in it and uh, make the sign of the cross to remember my baptism. So I miss that. I miss those candles, you know, that wall of candles where people would go and light a candle and pray. I miss that. I miss the two big stained glass windows of Christ. I mean, honestly, we're called Christ Church, right? And we have these beautiful windows of Jesus, our Christ, our Savior, and they are so beautiful. And it makes me a little bit sad that we can't see those beautiful windows because you can't really see the windows from the outside. You have to be inside to see how beautiful they are when the sun comes through the stained glass and it makes them look so gorgeous. I have to tell you that I have pictures of those stained glass windows on my phone. And even sometimes when I'm not in the church building, I take those pictures and look at them to remember how beautiful that they are. So it is a little bit different and sad that we're not in our building. But one of the things that Jesus reminds us of in the gospel lesson today is that wherever two or more are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. And I think that Jesus might have been thinking about our situation 2,000 years later. And I think that even when we are gathered together on Zoom, Jesus is here and very much so in our lives and in our thoughts, in our hearts, in our prayers, in our gathering together. And I think that we can still be the church. Well, we are the church, right? We don't need a building necessarily to be the church. We can gather on Zoom and, and even more than that, we can be the church in our own homes, 
We can be the church when we're at work. Whenever we share God's love with one another, whenever we forgive one another, whenever we talk about God's love and grace, whenever we remember people in the work of the church, and Jesus reminds us that he's with us then when that happens. In fact, there are other places where Jesus said, I'm with you always. So no matter where you are, or what you're involved in, Jesus is with you. So I look forward to the day when we can all gather together in our church building and look at all those things that we miss so much. But in the meantime, this is what we're going to do. And this is fine. And this is church. And it is holy and lovely and wonderful, mostly, well, partly because we're all together but mostly because Jesus promises to be with us even in this place. Okay? So this is our prayer for the young ones, that we never forget that Jesus is with us no matter what, that we remember our beautiful building, but how that building is not the church, that we are the church together in Jesus' name wherever we are. Amen. And so for the older ones, uh, a thought about the gospel lesson. Uh, I couldn't help but think this week uh, about what's coming up, the anniversary of the September 11th attack on the Pentagon and the World Trade Center. Uh, that day when uh, one word suddenly burst into the global arena of conversation, and that was the word evil. Even self-proclaimed secularists began using the word evil to describe what had happened on that bright early morning. And why not? No other word better captures the horror of what took place on that day. The downing of the commercial airplanes, the felling of the World Trade Center, the damaging of the Pentagon building, the slaughter of thousands of innocent people was nothing less than bold-faced evil dramatically played out on a highly visible international stage. What a strange irony it was for us Christians to suddenly hear so many people making liberal use of a word that just one day earlier they might have rejected as an expression from a bygone and unenlightened era. It was as if for the first time they had undeniable evidence that there is at work within the human experience a mass manageable and sinister dynamic that is capable of producing untold pain and destruction. Of course, God has been telling us this all along. The whole Bible conveys that something has gone wrong in the world and that only Christ can make it right. From Israel's captivity in Exodus to Ezekiel's prophecy during the great captivity, to the birth of the Christian era, 
God continually alerts us in the scriptures to the dreadful problem of evil and how it must be addressed. And if we read between the lines of Jesus' comments in Matthew 18, we're led to conclude that God is partially distressed about evil as it relates to the church. It engenders destructive conflict, something about which we must be overly concerned since we are primarily called by God to provide the world with a here and now testimony of the harmonious community of heaven. So the question is, is such divisive conflict a threat to this witness? And the answer is yes. There are probably countless descriptions and accounts of congregations whose testimony was devastated by internal conflict. So again, remember, I think that our primary goal as we gather together as church is to find a way to tell the world of God's love and to serve the world through acts of mercy. And if a congregation isn't doing one or both of those things, then there's already trouble. But you take into consideration uh, in the course of Christian history, all the conflicts that we've had, deciding the wording of the creeds, what we believe and what we reject, what books compile scripture and what books don't. Then you take into account all the different denominations and what we believe and what we teach and how it's different from the others and the reformations that have taken place throughout time. Even in the Lutheran church, we're probably so different from the Martin Luther movement uh, in his day that uh, maybe he wouldn't even recognize it. I don't know. Then you add on the, all the stresses that congregations can sometimes feel together, building programs, budget issues, staff issues. Um, there's uh, one church that comes to my mind. Uh, it had two gifted pastors, a large budget, an expansive mission program. It was the pride and joy of one of the struggling mainline denominations in the United States, and then the roof caved in. And for reasons that were ne never really made public, the pastor and the associate pastor couldn't get along, and people within the congregation took sides, and harsh words were exchanged. And in the end, there was a church-wide exodus. So how devastating it was to see this prosperous, progressive congregation reduced to a shell of its former self that was concerned primarily then with survival and not ministry as its principal concern. So erosive conflict can and does happen in churches. And when it does, the outcome is often catastrophic. No wonder Jesus prayed in the upper room, I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, and I are, in, are one, so also let the world believe in me that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them so that they may be one as we are one. So we, who are in God's church, 
need to take church conflict very seriously, asking ourselves if and when conflict surfaces, how can we settle it responsibly? So our gospel lesson today, uh, we see Jesus responding to the questions uh, that we might ask about how we handle it responsibly, responsibly by offering a godly program for conflict resolution. Uh, conf conflict resolution by the book, perhaps. So Jesus says that if another member of the church offends you, find a way to get alone with that person and talk it out with them. But Jesus suggests that things may not always go smoothly when you do that. Sometimes one-on-one -on -one conversation doesn't work. And when that happens, we're then able to take a couple of witnesses with us and it becomes a group effort to try to settle the disagreement. And then Matthew 18 suggests that even after following the first two steps, the conflict may not get resolved. Once in a while, we encounter someone who is particularly stiff-necked. When that happens, radical action is called for, and we need to expose the person and the problem to the whole church. That's what Jesus says. I think it's kind of similar to an intervention that family might make happen when they're concerned about a loved one who has uh, a drinking problem or a drug use problem or some other problem that is causing not only difficulty in their own personal lives, but difficulty within their family and within their circle of influence. The motivation ought not be shame or harm or getting our own way because we think we are right. But it's about loving that individual and about loving the whole community. It's about mirroring God's grace, God's undeserved love for us. And that's what Jesus is suggesting in the gospel lesson for today, I believe. In an early Laurel and Hardy film called Big Business, Stan and Ollie, and you know who they are, right? Laurel and Hardy. Stan and Ollie are enterprising Christmas tree salesmen. Joy fills the air as they go from door to door. Eventually, however, they come across a not-so-nice man who has no interest in buying a tree. The man shuts the door in a huff, but catches a tree branch in the jam of the door. Ali rings the bell and the annoyed homeowner opens the door to free the branch. Then he slams the door only to catch Stan's coat in it. Stan presses the doorbell again. When the man opens the door to free Stan's coat, he again catches the tree branch with the door. This time when the doorbell rings, the man opens it, clippers in hand, and he cuts the tree to pieces tossing it onto the lawn. Ali retaliates by pulling the doorbell out of the wall and snipping the wires and snipping the phone wires so the man can't call the police. The movie then records an escalating scenario of conflict and destruction. And when all is said and done, there are only two heaps of rubble left. So when evil conflict goes unchecked 
in the church, relational rubble is the inevitable outcome. Jesus reminds us in Matthew 18 that our responsibility as members of a congregation is to work tirelessly to prevent this from happening. It's also important for us to remember as a member of the church that God calls us to be in this worldwide proclamation and visible expression of God's love. So then, I'll ask you, is this your ambition? I challenge you to make it so. As people of faith, we must show a September 11th world that evil can be overcome, that there is hope in the face of hatred, and that by God's grace, even broken relationships can be mended. Never lose sight of your high calling in participating in those conversations and in witnessing God's love to your neighbor and to the world. We are the people of God, the earthly preview of the community of heaven, where mourning and crying and pain and suffering will be no more. Let it be so. Amen.